Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. I don't have any signature dishes because I feel like they lose the story over time. They lose everything about them that was exciting and was was there and its original intent is gone. So Do you not bring things back? Never. That is Chef Justin Hilbert of Maud Restaurant in Beverly Hills, California. Our guest this week on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm your host, Andrew Friedman. And as you may be able to tell by the pep in my vocal step <laughs> and by that little sigh. That Kate, was a sigh. That was a laugh. Caitlin is back. For new listeners, Caitlin is my wife. Caitlin does these intros with me when we're able to swing it because I, for some reason, am unable to imagine conversing directly with the audience. I need to have another person present. I don't think you do. I think I do. <laughs> I think you just like hanging out with me. I, I do like hanging out with you. The first two episodes of this season, yeah, they're fine. They're fine. Mm. I actually listened to some other podcasts where there's a solo person. Yeah. They're fine. They're functional. Right. They're functional. But I like the show. Maybe I'm delusional. To be a listener experience from the, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And that, I feel, only happens when you're present. My whole energy changes when there's someone else here, and it especially changes when you are here. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. I'm getting ready to go on the road again. As soon as we record this, I'm hopping a flight to Chicago for some book events. Yeah. I took the summer off. I was supposed to be done promoting my book. And then all these invitations rolled in this summer, and I have a little fall tour. And you're excited about it. I'm excited. I'm doing a dinner I should say Spiaggia Restaurant is doing a dinner for me tonight uh, with the f- featuring the flavors of the 80s. That'll have already happened when you guys hear this. We're recording this Tuesday morning. I'm actually, re- we're recording at 6.20 a.m. And in 10 minutes, the taxi's pulling up to take me to the airport. And then I'll be in Chicago in a couple hours. And I will be in Chicago when this drops. I'm doing an event at Read It and Eat Bookstore. I'm doing the Kitchen Chat Podcast with Margaret McSweeney. While I'm in town, like me, she likes to have her guests in the flesh, in person, so I'll be doing that, and I'm bringing my podcasting gear, and maybe I'll get lucky and get a podcast while I'm there. Sounds great. It's going to be great. Yeah. And 48 hours from now, I'll be on my way home. That is a whirlwind trip. It's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, our guest today is Chef Justin Hilbert. Justin is the chef of Maud Restaurant in Beverly Hills. Maud is one of Curtis Stone's two restaurants. The other is Gwen, which is his meat-centric restaurant that has an amazing butcher shop attached to it or is a feature of it. Maud is a totally different animal. Maud was Curtis's first restaurant in LA, and it started life as a restaurant that uh, regularly changed its focus. They would pick a, a main ingredient in every course on the menu featured that ingredient. They did that for three 
years, changing it monthly. 36 different tasting menus. And then they switched about the time this interview happened and started doing wine regions. So they would build their menus around different wine regions. And it's a long story, but I actually recorded this interview when I was uh, in Los Angeles promoting my book in the spring. I'm not airing it till now. We don't need to get into the details, but it's kind of embarrassing for me. But in any event, the restaurant has moved on to different regions since then. But we talk about the Rioja menu they were going to do. We talk about the Burgundy menu. I actually went in and, and had the Burgundy dinner there, which was phenomenal. Um, and Justin is the chef de cuisine there and just does an amazing job. And he has an incredible backstory. He worked for Wiley Dufresne uh, at WD-50 uh, in the pastry department when Alex Stupak was there and had a lot of other very interesting jobs. He was also the chef of Gwinnett Street, which was a key restaurant in the Brooklyn Renaissance that's happened over the years. And it's, it's a biographical interview, but also very largely, I think, a philosophical interview. Justin is very raw. He's very open about his emotions. And it's half a therapy session, but I mean that in the best way. And I don't mean that as like a, I mean, I kind of mean it in a half kidding way. But he's, I, I, as listeners know, and as you know, Caitlin, I really appreciate guests who are just open. I feel like we live yeah, in a- Yeah, it feels authentic and not, you know, they're, they're not reading off of talking points. Right, or they're not overly media trained. Or right. they're not, I can't stand that. Recently, Dan Holtzman was on the show from the Meatball Shop and gave an amazing revealing interview. And Dan loved that interview, as did I. So I feel similarly about this interview with Justin. Um, I don't know that I need to say that much more about it, but I will say- there, there is a little universe of characters that are starting to emerge for this show. I, I, I don't by any means think that this show uh, defines the network of chefs around this country. But Justin is on this episode. He is part of the Curtis Stone restaurant group. Uh, Curtis was on this show at the end of last year in December of 17. Uh, Justin used to work for Alex Stupak, the very first episode of this series, episode number one, is a very long interview with Alex Stupak. Claire Welly, formerly the chef of Otway, who is no longer at Otway, did an interview with me earlier this year. Claire worked for Justin. That does not come up in the interview, but they're big fans of each other. So there's this little interesting sort of thread that's starting to... Uh, happen amongst the episodes, this little web of connectivity. And I think that's really cool. So I think when Justin refers to Curtis, to Alex, well, not to uh, Otway or Claire, but to but we know this now because I've just told talked about it. I think that's interesting. I think there's a real depth that's starting to emerge. Anyway, having said all that, I don't think I'm going to say any more. What do you think? I think you have a taxi to get into. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. With that, this is my interview with Chef Justin Hilbert, recorded earlier this year at Maud Restaurant in Beverly Hills. I want to start with this, if it's okay. I want to start with talking about our night the other night. Oh, yeah. Because sure. to me, your skills that were on display in this very um, non-traditional setting, about as different as it could be from where we are right now, but also the spirit of what you did the other day was to me quintessentially kind of exemplified a certain type of chef and a certain type of mindset. So 
an old employer of mine, Marsha Nassiter, who probably will never hear this podcast, 91 years old, sweetest person ever, also a very tough person, um, former studio executive, threw me a, a book party here in L.A. I asked a few friends to contribute some food to the party. I just asked each person for one like canapé to set out for about, you know, we had about 50 people coming. My, my ask over here was really of Curtis, who I know a little bit. And you, um, so first of all, you showed up not with one canapé. You showed up with a giant, what do you call those big plastic? Uh, Lexan. Lex, right, Lexan container. I mean, huge, like a footlocker. Another, a huge basket filled with serving platters and plates and all kinds of very beautiful, ornate stuff to put the things on. And you had a whole assortment of canapes that you personally had prepped. And they weren't even, a lot of them required on-site finishing and assembly, right? As they say in the children's toy industry. (laughs) And we get upstairs and Marsha had very sweetly started to do like crudite and you know what normal non-industry people do a cheese plate but also feeling a little overwhelmed and you just immediately immediately almost by instinct said you know what why don't just let me do everything and we had about 40 minutes till people were going to show up and then you proceeded to not only finish all your own stuff which was delicious and gorgeous but arrange the cheese platter Slice and make a bread basket with the breads that she had and everything else. Now, where, where does this come from for you? Because you could have just done what you were there to do very easily, and nobody would have thought any less of you for it. But it was amazing the way you jumped in. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's like the work ethic instilled by my parents, instilled by 20 years of cooking. I mean, yeah. like, you just don't want things to go awry or... You just want everything to be great all uh-huh. the time. Like, I always want to show our best face and make yeah. sure, you know, everything is. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. I'm, it's, too, it's too early it's for too me early. for my brain to work. <laughs> um, you want to make sure everything is right. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. make sure everything goes fine. And it's just, it's. To be honest, sometimes it's just easier to do it yourself. And just, that did occur to me too. Stand and watch things go. Right. Stand and watch things go a little crazy. But right. Um, do you feel it as, you know, I've had other events, like like a friend of mine once did a thing for my kid's school. They donated a dinner for six in your home, right? Yeah. And I had said, you know, I'll, I'll cook it with you. And when the time came to do it, I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't do anything. I, like, followed him around and, like, cleaned up. And right. I'm a pretty good cook, and I've, you know, I've recipe tested with chefs, and I mean, I'm okay. Um, but it's, it's, it feels to even me sometimes, like, watching you the other night, it feels almost to me, this is slightly overstating it, but it almost feels like a superpower that someone at your, in your profession at your level has. Like the, 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 the ability to function at that much higher a level, not just the actual technical piece of it, but the immediate mental organization that happened. You knew, I think, 80% at least, from when you said that, you, you kind of, there was an immediate blueprint in your head. Sure. And of what was going to happen. Anticipation and finesse, right? you got to know uh-huh. what's going to happen <laughs> based on experience and be able to but make it, it happen. But does it feel that way to you? Does it feel like almost at this point? I know, I know you had to work hard for it. I know you had to learn how to slice and then move up, you know, and then get sure. to where you are. You had to, there's a progression of it. But when you get to the level of um, 
of, well, you just said finesse. When you get to the level of ability that you have, um, does, it, does it feel like that? It just feels natural. You it know? just it feels just, natural. It doesn't really feel like you're doing anything. It's just yeah. you're just doing what you do every day. Yeah. It's just kind of normal. Yeah. It's actually fun to do something different like that. Uh-huh. Because it's totally out of routine. Like, right, I'm just, so you actually enjoy that. At that, that time, that. I'm just doing dinner service and yeah. expediting or plating yeah. or whatever I feel like doing yeah. that day. But um, that's just totally, it's, it's new. It's fun. It's yeah. like, yeah, let's do it. Let's just make it happen. You okay. Know? Well. I have to say thank you again. I, you know, Laryl and I were in touch, Laryl Garcia, who's sitting here with us. And I was like, it's, you know, I knew you had some stuff planned. And I said, you know, I hope, because I'd just seen the, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a residential apartment. I said, you know, it's not like a, you know, this isn't like a catering hall. This isn't, and, you know, coming from a restaurant like this, I just didn't want you to be disappointed. But you were, yeah, it was amazing. Well, it was fun. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Meeting right. Marsha was amazing. Let's talk about, your life my life <laughs> first of all where are you, where, where were you born i grew up in bucks county pennsylvania mm-hmm. um i was born in chestnut hill i uh-huh. was raised in warrington pennsylvania which yeah. is a suburb of bucks county uh, what kind what kind of community is that that's middle class uh-huh. neighborhoods yeah you know an hour outside of philadelphia yeah just you know Good school systems, right. pretty just like straightforward, you know, American yeah. life. Go to the mall, buy your clothes, yeah. you know, go to school, <laughs> yeah. play soccer, skateboard, uh-huh. whatever you do, baseball. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Were you a jock? I was not. What kind of kid were you? Uh, a bad one. A bad one? Yeah, like I was in, a, like a delinquent? Yeah, a little bit. Uh-huh. A little bit, you know. It's kind of, you know, how the cooking starts, you know. You know uh-huh. You don't want a real job, so. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask you something. There's often a moment when I interview chefs where they'd say something like you just said about, usually about their adolescence. Right. And there's usually, I usually like to probe a little with anything. Sure. I usually get a vibe when somebody alludes to what you, like a bad kid, right? I usually get a vibe like, that's all you're getting. I'm not telling you anything else. No, and I mean, don't go there. I wasn't. Did like, I get that vibe just now? No, I, I mean, I wasn't bad, bad. You know, I was just like I was into skateboarding. I was into art. I wasn't uh-huh. really into like playing sports mm-hmm. so much. Like, Were I you got, a loner? I had friends. I mean, I got picked on a lot when I was a kid. Did you? In my neighborhood, everybody was my, my brother's three and a half years older than me. And all the kids in my neighborhood were that age. And okay. I was like the youngest. So. Uh-huh. You know, I try to play with the big kids, but I always right. got like picked on and beat up and not beat up like physically, but just like, you know, right. like, pushed around and held yeah. down and teased and that sort of thing. Um, it's probably why I'm such a jerk today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't really so much into school. I was more yeah. into, you know, I was into making cartoons and that sort of thing and I mean, Cartoons like an, actually animated? A little bit, yeah. I was getting into that in school and just drawing and comics and things like that. Uh huh. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an artist. And is that right? Uh, were you good when you look back? Do you think you were pretty good? I was pretty good. It's this. I, I've had the same problem my whole life. Is nothing's ever good enough for me. So at some point in my life, I just give up because I can't be great. I I feel like I can't be great. So that's been my struggle my whole life. Is just like even with cooking, I've given up at several times in my life and just you've stepped away from it at different points several times really yeah. 
Why do you think that is? Does it feel even wrong to you? What's that? To, 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 to have that point of view? Because I've there are things that I've... Like as a writer, okay? Like I just finished a book. I, the book, I wanted the book to be oral history. Right. Just nothing but interviews. And, and the reason for that was, I think I'm a pretty good writer, but I don't think I'm a great writer, right? And I don't think I could be the best writer. I just, I'm not that, I won't be. I think I'm a great interviewer, right? Sure. So I wanted my book to just be interviewing. And the fact that I ended up having to write something was painful for me, mm-hmm. you know? And if I'm honest, it still is, because I... Because it's, I know I have friends who would have written it better, you know. Right. And does this make sense to you? Is it this does. sort of aligning with what of you course. were saying? Right. So there are things I just don't do um, because I know I just know instinctively I can't be the best at it. You know, I think I could conceivably, if I keep working at it, be up there with something like what you and I are doing right now. Sure. Right. That's the only thing I feel that way about, you know. And people say, oh, you've written 30 books. I'm sure if you say this to someone, like, I could say to you, yeah, but you're the chef at Maud. And that would be not, that would not assuage what you're feeling. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know sometimes what's relevant as far as how, how far I've come in life. Or, yeah. Because I, I guess I'm too hard on myself. Yeah. I always make things too complicated for myself as well. Like with, By taking more things on or by... I'm, Trying to add another layer to things. Just recently, I'm, recently in my life, I've been able to delegate more and empower people. Where my whole life, I'm just like a perfectionist in my own head. Yeah. Like, even if I make something, say I made you dinner and you loved it and you told me the best it was the best meal you ever had, I wouldn't believe you. You know, I I, I don't believe in myself that way, unfortunately, sometimes, and and it's but, been a struggle for me in that sense. But is it is it is that supported though? In other words, are you right? Like, like you make me a dinner, like you just said, right? Sure. And maybe you tasted something before it came out or before you put the plate together. And are you, in your head, maybe you're like, ah, this isn't quite where it should be? Or is it not supported like that? Is well, it, do you know what I'm saying? Is it just a, is it an automatic reflex for you to be unsatisfied? No. Or do you actually, is there a, are you actually right? I mean, it's And the, you just have really high standards. It's the 1%. Yeah. You get in in fine dining, it's... You know, no one else knows. Right. So it doesn't really matter, but it, right. it does. To you. So, yeah it, yeah, it depends on how much you consider that to matter. Right. Right. So you could beat yourself up over it because you're not doing the best you could possibly do. You let something slide and it's just, yeah, it eats at you. Right. It doesn't have to because it doesn't really matter. It's just dinner and everybody loves it and they're happy. Yeah. But. But there's a lot of people who have done great things who would say they, they have this exact same mindset. Sure. And that's how they got great. Yeah. No? I guess. I mean... I mean, maybe I, you could be happier. <laughs> <laughs> I am happy. I used to be miserable. I used to be very miserable in New York. And just uh-huh. nothing was ever good enough. And, and work hard and harder yeah. and harder and harder until you burn yourself out. And yeah. it just makes it worse. You yeah. Know? Like, you can only do so much on your own. Yeah. And once you realize that, it's... It's okay. This is the point I'm at now. I'm 38 and I'm finally realizing that I can only do so much. Yeah. And it's just figuring out what you do and what you let go and being comfortable with that. Not to say you're letting go completely, but you're letting somebody else take care of it. You're like my sous chefs or whatever it may be, but they have to learn. Yeah. Like, cause my whole life I've been like, well, if I let them do it, then they're going to screw up. Then I'm just going to have to do it anyway. Yeah. So I might as well just do it. Yeah. That's not really the way to think. Like, people need to learn on their own. I learned on my own. Yeah. Somebody let me do that. Right. 
I didn't realize it at the time. I'm realizing it now. Right. Or in the past couple of years, I've realized that since I moved to L.A. Like, I can only do so much. Well, are you... I'm going to... Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to guess from everything you just said that you were an amazing line cook and an amazing sous chef. I was. Uh, <laughs> is that bad to say? I don't know. No, but um, here's what I mean by that. And then I'll let you, if I could just add this, this is where I'm coming from. I think that the transition for people, the way you move up in a kitchen is by being, you know, you know what the chef wants before they even know it. You know, you, you see them, you know, they're going to turn around and ask for this tool or this, right? Or, or some, exactly, some yeah. right? Or bowl of whatever. Like when, if you're the person who can do that, or if you're the person who just keeps uh, um, absorbing more and more work, you're the dream line cook. You, you're the dream sous chef. You, as a person coming up the ladder in a kitchen, right, are constantly supporting the organism and the chef, right? Yeah. Okay, then you get to the top of the ladder and suddenly that flips. And you're need, you need to be supported by your team. That's what you're talking about right now. And I think for a lot of people, that when you elevate to that position, that for some people is a very hard transition. I think, A, because you've spent your whole life not doing that. You've spent your whole life trying to take on as much as humanly possible, right? Improving yeah. yourself. And B, you also like to freaking cook, yeah. right? And, and you have to let go of both of those things to some extent. Well, there's two parts to that. It's when I was coming up, it's always like, yeah, it's for me, it's always been anticipation of knowing what the chef wants, and being able to make it happen and right. being the best cook I could be. Yeah. And that was great. It gave me a drive. Yeah. Like when I was a chef to party, my station was my own little restaurant, you know, yeah. and I could run it how I wanted to run it, organize yeah. it how I wanted to run it. And my dream was to be a sous chef and then a chef. Yeah. And run a restaurant and... It took a long time to happen because, for many reasons. Um, but when I became a chef, yeah, when I was, it was hard because it still is because I don't want my cooks to feel like I'm taking advantage of them or I'm lazy or right. I'm not around. Because when you, I've worked for chefs that are never there, and I had no respect for them. Like, yeah. why is this guy not in the kitchen all the time? He's got this restaurant. You know, he should be here. It's yeah. his food. He's not even paying attention. But you know, you realize that there's, as you get older, there's only so much you can do. And there's more things you can do with your time to make it better, like working on your restaurant instead of in your restaurant or whatever it may be. Right. So I still have that struggle where, like last night I left early and I felt guilty about it. Yeah. You know, we had, we had a slow night, but, you know, I have plenty of people that can handle it and do a great job. All yeah. my cooks do a great job. They're amazing. Yeah. Um, I still feel guilty. I feel like I'm letting them down yeah. sometimes, which yeah. I'm not. And they want me to leave. They want me to relax <laughs> and you know enjoy myself. But it's just this layer. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I was raised Christian. I have no idea. You know, it's just that. <laughs> yeah. that uh, well, this is the Jewish Christian nexus, yeah, yeah. right? That, the guilt the level yeah. of guilt that's always been instilled in you since a child. And yeah. It's like you just feel bad about everything you do. Sometimes. Right. Or by, so, by enjoying yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But you seem, I mean, I'm sitting here with you. You're not sitting up like military straight. You know, you're in a T-shirt. You don't seem terribly, like a terribly intense person. Um, is, do, you have to, do you hide that? Or is this just something that you've got a major piece with? I'm um, intense sometimes. It yeah. Depends. I pick and choose. I'm you can be outwardly intense? My yeah. I mean, you can ask them. <laughs> 
It depends on just, any just given looked day. over his shoulder at the, at the two uh, cooks who were in the kitchen already. That's hilarious. It's a time and place kind of thing. You, know? you have to compartmentalize. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, you know, you have to be a little bit more strategic about how you yeah. do it these days. People yeah. get very upset. You know, I, yeah. I, when I grew up, I got plates thrown at me from two feet away. You know, it's like, yeah. and then they break and you have to pay for them. They come out of your check. Yeah. That doesn't happen these days. You no, know? you have to be very, more very world delicate now. about how you handle situations. Yes. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, those old things that, you know, you learned in the past about yelling and snapping from your old chefs. It's just yeah. kind of like, it's very, you know, it's always hard to, you have a feeling about how something should be, taste and look. And, yeah. you know, some people just don't get it. No matter how hard you try, it's... If it's a dish that, you know, means so much to you in a sense where it comes from your heart and your mind and, you know, it's not portrayed how you want it to be portrayed. It's just, that's always been a thing for me where it's, once it's not as it should be or, Mm -hmm. you know, has deviated from where it started, it's off the menu because there's no bringing it back. But I don't have any signature dishes because I feel like they lose the story over time they lose everything about them that was exciting and was was there and its original intent is gone so do you not bring things back never that's so rarely funny. i mean we did the greatest hits thing but it yeah it was painful for me like because you're only the second chef i've ever spoken to paul liebrandt very Love paul liebrandt very similar point of view I did Paul's book. Yeah. Paul does not, he retires things. Yeah. It's like Jerry Seinfeld with his, you know, who's his act. You know, every year it goes into the, goes into the archive. Right. When it's done, it's done. You know, it's. That's so interesting move forward. Me. I mean, sure, I could, I've done enough food in my life where I could just, you know, bring back all the dishes. And yeah. They were great dishes. I'm, you know, there's highs and lows, but yeah. when you bring back the great ones, you have a whole menu and for the course of however many years, you know? Yeah. Is it also for you because, um, I mean, food, at the level that you operate, right? I know a lot of chefs don't like calling what they do an art, okay? But it is expressive. It does flow out of your own experience. Um, Do you feel like part of the reason for what you just said is that you yourself are evolving, right? Changing. You're a different person now than you were when you created the dishes you were doing three years ago. Is that part of it? So you just, you don't want, you want to be doing something more reflective of who you are now? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I really have like a certain style. I just kind of make what I feel like making based on what we're doing with these menus. Yeah. And, and like we're going into Burgundy menu, which I want to make super French. You know? Right. I want to make it super old school French. Yeah. And, and then some like, New things, which you don't really get to do that often, which is great about this restaurant because, like, we're doing a Spanish menu right now. Yes. I can make it Spanish, but there's not many restaurants that can just turn on a dime what yes. they do. They're known for what they do, and they're expected yeah. to do that. Yeah. And with this place, we can do whatever we want right. whenever we want to. Yeah. So that's fun. It's challenging, but it's yeah. fun. So, well, let's talk about that for a minute. So you all, and I talked to Curtis a little bit about this back in December when you guys were getting ready to do the Rioja menu. Yeah. But what's so once a quarter now, you guys change. You you attack a different wine region. What's that process? How do how do you go about that? We fly to the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and we is who? Uh, myself, Curtis, uh, Ben Avram, the 
operations manager. Uh, the sommeliers and from Gwen and from here. Yeah. And there's PR involved and a photographer. Okay. So like seven, eight people. Yeah. Uh, we ran a bus. Oh, you run a bus? Or like a, you know, like a sprinter kind of deal. Okay. Drive all around different wineries. Is there a driver or one of you guys drives? Sometimes we have a driver. Sometimes we drive. Yeah. Depends. We've done two, so it's hard okay. to say. Yeah. What usual is, right. The yeah. Rioja one, we had a driver. It yeah. was all set up. Yeah. Um, through the Consuela. This one, we kind of did it on our own. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we try and eat as many restaurants as we can. We yeah. try and meet anyone that wants to talk to us about what they do yeah. outside of the wine. Yeah. We met a, a, a guy with a snail farm, which was amazing in Burgundy. I met... What's a know, snail farm like? Not what you would expect. Oh, I mean, it was January? Yeah, January. So, you know, this is these back roads, French countryside. Yeah. Pull up to this little rustic, slightly medieval town. Yeah. Um, back, it was insane to find. We finally found it. Um, you know, it was just like a house yeah. and a little rundown barn. Yes. And a big wet yard in the back. Yeah. It was squared off with some different rows, like you would plant vegetables. Uh huh. But that was where vegetation grew for the snails to go in between. There was no snails then through the harvesting seasons in the spring. Yeah. So, um, they were all kind of frozen. Uh huh. Um, they're all. Like you can't get fresh nails. Like they're all processed at the at the place. Yeah. And then, you know, they they're not frozen. Frozen. They're like very cold to the part where they're dormant, and then they get blanched, and they get removed from their shells. Okay. And then cooked in a corpoyon and sort of thing, and then stuffed back in the shell with butter and garlic, and then sent out, or they're sent out in their own brine. Okay. Um, which is how we're getting, and we're buying all the snails for the burgundy menu from this guy. Uh huh. Um, but then he took us into his little house, and he's got, like, a whole little mini processing facility in his house. Is it he just does, him? Yeah. Does it all by himself. How old is this guy? Probably late 40s. What's he like? He's amazing. Super nice guy. His name's Sylvan. I forgot his last name. I'm uh-huh. sorry about that. Um, but, yeah, he was super mellow. Really excited to meet us. Really excited to show us yeah. what he did. Then he took us up into his house, served us all these different varieties of snails that... Um, packaged goods that he produces and sells uh-huh. like he does not, not only harvests all the snails yeah. by himself he does all this like retail stuff yeah. as well this so was he, like he gave you like the old mod meant, like you get a you had a snail tasting sure it was, <laughs> it was like seven different things and i'm gonna try and incorporate as many as those into the burgundy menu we're gonna do a traditional snail course uh-huh. we're gonna do this snail on toast thing that he gave us and cool. he did this snail and crawfish bisque which was insane you wouldn't think that crawfish and snails go together in a bisque but it was amazing so so he's a good cook he was a great cook uh-huh and then he served wine wow. his family was there it was it was an amazing experience those it kind was, of moments when you're over i mean i've never spent time in burgundy but i've had moments like that in lyon and sure yeah it, it, they stay with you forever and that's the part of the menu that's great because we have stories that we can tell because every good tasting menu has a story it has kind of a away it goes it's not just a bunch of dishes back to back to back that are just right they have no context exactly so when you say stories we can i have not been in since the menu turned over i'm coming in i'm going to be back in town in april and i'm going to come for the burgundy menu um but um when you say the stories does the front of house staff convey some of these things that you just 
told me, like in the way that, say, a, a, a sommelier will sometimes give you a little sketch of the winemaker or the process? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we don't want to bury people with stories right. with every course. I mean, no. every course from the Rioja menu has a story. Uh-huh. Um, and we kind of, they choose on their own which ones they want to tell. Yeah. Um, we kind of have a very tiny restaurant here, so yeah. everybody kind of sees everything and hears everything as it goes on. Right. Um, so we don't want to sound too repetitive with every single table we touch, every single course. You know, we leave it up to because them. people are hearing. They hear the. They hear the. I hate to use the word spiel, but they hear the presentation. Yeah. I use a more positive the word. Spiel they is, use is the, totally fine. They use the pres, They hear the presentation at their own table, and then they might overhear it to some degree three or four other times at various proximity over their meal. So you don't want it to sound like it's just a. a um, Something that's just happening by rote that doesn't have a right. And you some, want it to be a real con- a connection between server and exactly. Diner. Some yeah. people don't care and don't want to hear it. So right. you know, you read your guests and yeah, go from there. Yeah. Okay. There's one thing I want to ask you, and then I want to after the break, I want to talk a little bit about your your origin story, your backstory. Sure. But um, it seems to me that there are you exist in a very unusual place here, right? Men- mentally as well. It's just. <laughs> no, but you uh, creatively, okay? Because there's, you have Curtis here, right? Um, and then you also have it used to be the ingredient. Now it's the wine region, right? And you're here as the chef, right? But there's these two other influences, these two other um, factors that are flowing into the food, right? And then there's your own point of view. How does that all get synthesized? How does that all come together? That seems like an awful lot of stuff to have come together. I have again. I haven't been here since you switched over, but I had the beet menu here last year, which I loved. It doesn't feel like something that was put together, you know, by committee or by collaboration. It feels very of a piece. You know, each course felt very. It all felt. It all hung together. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Am I making sense? Yeah. How how does that work? It's just. It depends on the menu. Some menus, most like at the end of the day, it's. Curtis leaves it up to me. Like, mm-hmm. Things we work on together, right? Uh, inspirations I have, inspirations we have. It's he's entrusted me to run this restaurant yes. and do my best, and he knows that I will because he knows the kind of person I am. Mm-hmm. That I'm, you know, a perfectionist. There's been times we work on it together. There's been times we work on my, myself. Right. I struggle with a dish sometimes when we're putting it together. He'll give me a bunch of ideas, and we'll go from there. Got it. Um, which is very helpful. He's a busy guy. You yes. know, he's got yeah. a lot of things going on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm here. I do that. Yeah. And, you know, he comes in now and then, and, yeah. you know, he'll run service, and I'll just, like, go to the office. And yeah. Like, all right, it's your restaurant. Go for it, buddy. <laughs> which is great yeah. for me. I didn't mean to imply break. otherwise, by the way. No, no, no. Yeah, no. But then there's the piece that's the you know the wine region, which yeah. you know it is interesting to I me mean, when you said you just cook what you like to eat, like you don't feel like you have a whatever. Did you use the word style? Your own? I do well, have a style, but you used a word of, in this interview. You said yeah. something. Yeah, like you know, you feel like you just cook what you. You know, it is interesting that you have this um, periodically changing focus here, and to have a chef who you know described yourself the way you did a minute ago. It's interesting. You seem happy to put yourself in service of this like periodic creative challenge. Yeah, I mean, for me, this transition is kind of great because, um, you know, for the past three, yeah. three years, I've been doing the same thing. Like yeah. This tasting menu that, that follows a certain structure yeah. and has the same ingredient. And now we're doing something completely different. Yeah. It's just 
you know, seasonal. Yes. And it's a tasting menu and it doesn't have to be any amount of courses. Yeah. It doesn't have to have any. This was part of the idea I had is that we don't want it to be the same restaurant every three months as far as like the walls, the chairs, everything's the same. But, you know, this month it's eight courses. Next month it could be 20. Next season it could be 20 courses. It just doesn't. It doesn't have to be a certain way, which yeah. I like. But at the same time, it's kind of like, okay, well, what do I do? Yeah. Like, I can't just do a spring menu or a winter menu. Yeah. I need some, you need some sort of, I personally right now need some sort of path in which way to go. In mm-hmm. sense. So this, there's this Spanish path, which I can go off of, or this French path. You like the a, structure of this. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's tells its own little story yeah. and I can figure, I can navigate through that however I want, you know, yeah. it's like, you can go as far away from the path as you want, but it's still there to but give you a little sort guideline. Of a, right. There's like a, it's like, a runway. It's like driving with ways, you know, like it puts like you driving in, with ways. Yeah. <laughs> it, it puts you in this sort of path that kind of makes sense, but when it makes you want to make a left turn over four lanes of traffic, that's never going to happen. So right. you, you have to adjust and, right. and go as you see fit, but it's always going to bring you back to the location. Love you it. Go. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to the show. We're going to get you to the balance of our interview with Chef Justin Hilbert of Maud Restaurant in Beverly Hills in just a minute. But first, Caitlin. Yes. As I mentioned in the intro, I am back on the road again. I'm going to be doing a dinner on October 13th. That is a Saturday night. That is about 10 days after this episode drops. It is uh, for the James Beard Foundation. It is a dinner that I'm told was occasioned by my book. My book, by the way, this is the weekly plug, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. It is the story of the American chefs of the 70s and 80s. I can't believe this dinner. It is a collaborative dinner. Each of the following chefs is doing a course. Jeremiah Tower, Nancy Silverton, Jimmy Schmidt, Mary Sue Milliken and Larry Forgione. Now, for people who know the chef world in this country, they are legends all. I cannot believe it. My book will be given out to guests. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be signing it. And this is going to be at the Luxor Hotel Saturday night, October 13th. I'm also going to be at the Miami Book Fair in Miami, Florida, my hometown in mid-November. All of these events, rather than me giving you individual websites and whatnot, I have finally updated (laughs) the events page on my blog. So if you go to toklandcom slash appearances, that's T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D dot com 
slash appearances, you will see all these events. Each one has a link where you can go to buy tickets or register or whatever needs to happen for the respective events. And I'll be adding to those uh, as they come in this fall. I'm going to be doing something at the Chef's Garden in Ohio. I'm going to be at Boston University. But those uh, aren't quite up online yet. So as those continue to proliferate, I will add. So you're my energy, Caitlin. This is because you're here. I don't talk like this when it's just me and the dog. <laughs> okay. You don't listen to the sh- Have you heard the new shows? Maybe. You have a little sheepish look. You haven't. Andrew, I've been really busy. You yeah. Know, when well, you're no, the, if you, when li- you're the road. I want you to listen to them and you'll notice that there's a difference. Okay. Anyway, also the weekly reminder, if you want to follow the show, please subscribe to us on Stitcher or iTunes. And if you would be good enough to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. I have to say for over a month, we have been parked at 95 ratings and 35 reviews. That's 95. Great. No, that's great. I was going to say, that's actually kind of great. Most shows that are only a year old would kill for that. Yeah. But that is excruciatingly close to triple digits. Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And then and it hasn't moved in a, in, in a, over a month. Aww. <laughs> womp womp. You're just back, though. I got to do my whatever that jerk was on television. Womp womp. Okay. Uh, that's it. I tried really hard, people, not to get into politics this week. It's been a rough one, but I'll leave it at that. Okay, with that, here is the rest of our interview with Chef Justin Hilbert recorded at Maud Restaurant in Beverly Hills. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Justin, take me back. How did you... When did cooking come into your life? Were you a, Did you like to eat as a kid? Did you cook as a kid? Did you like going to restaurants as a kid? Was that part of your childhood? I mean, mostly just... My sister would come home from college. She's seven years older than me. Mm-hmm. And um, we would cook together. Like my parents, if my parents would be away, she would come back. I mean, I was probably 10 or 12, maybe mm-hmm. even up to when I was 13. Uh, she would come back the weekend. They would go away for the weekend. Then we would hang out, cook dinners. My mom was very... Is it just the two of you? Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a brother too, but he okay. was, just did his own thing. Yeah. Um, my mom was a really good cook, but she cooked the normal mom food, yeah. you know, but she yeah. didn't like Chinese food. She didn't like ethnic cuisines. Uh-huh. And my sister kind of introduced me to them. She was in college yeah. and she'd seen all the the, the world, you know, as, right. um, as far as that goes. So we would make like enchiladas. We would make all kinds of stuff like that. Right. And it was fun. And I got into it and she was a waitress. Uh, well, my first job, I was a dishwasher at Best Western at 14. Um, my friend got me at. Um, my mom stopped buying skateboards for me. And when you're into skateboarding, you break a skateboard like once right. a week at least. Right. So you got to buy new ones. They're 40 to $50. So uh-huh. you need a job to make that happen. Um, so I started with that. And then my sister got me another dishwasher job in her restaurant. Yeah. And I did that. Uh, and then I did some prep cooking yeah. as well. Like you go from dishwasher to prep cook. Yeah. And then I kind of got out of it for a little bit and, and worked in other jobs, tried to get in, involved. And I always wanted to be a cashier. I thought that was like the dream job. Like really? Cashier in a gas station. Like my friend had, like as a, in, in high school, you know, you just sit, you just sit there at a gas station. It's just easy. You don't have to do anything <laughs> and you get paid for it. I thought it was amazing. You only you have know? to deal with the customer for like five seconds. Yeah, it sounded great. I don't know. Maybe I never, That's I never so got a, offered a job. Like I applied, but maybe I messed up the math course or you something. You actually tried to get that job? I applied to so many jobs. As, as a, a cashier. cashier. I wanted to be a cashier. <laughs> I just, it seemed so easy. And, um, you know, I always ended up being a cook. I worked at 
I probably worked at 20 restaurants in three years alone in my hometown. Are you serious? Yeah. Because you wanted to try different things? No, because I would last like two or three weeks and I'd be like, screw this. This is stupid. This sucks. This, I hate this place. And because I just what? Go, were, you didn't whatever. like the boss? You didn't think the food was any good? Anything, yeah. I didn't like the boss. It was I'm going to posit a theory. I believe that the cashier thing to you, okay, I loved, I feel like you and I have a similarity here. I loved, as a kid, I had a, I had a, I had a talent for math. I didn't like math, but I had a talent for math. I was like AP calculus and... I had no interest in math. But the thing I loved about math was there's always, there is one right answer. It's not ambiguous. It's not open to interpretation. A cashier's job, like you were saying how easy it is, mm-hmm. but it is a job that you either do it right or wrong. There's sure. not an in-between. Yeah. This to me seems like it would satisfy your need for perfection. <laughs> I'm not even trying to be cute. I actually believe that. Maybe. Does that make any I sense? Didn't, I didn't know about the perfection back then. I mean, no, but it was there. I mean, you hadn't identified it, but if sure. that's part of who you are, I could see. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's something you could do to perfection. Right. Anyway. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm know, totally it's, serious. It's probably true. I never <laughs> did it that way. Okay. I just so, wanted it to be easy, you know? Can I, we, can we talk about this? Is a listeners know this? This is one of the things that's very fascinating to me is the dishwasher job. Okay, um, now you already had some interest in food from your sister. I think it's a very underrecognized thing by non by civilians, non industry people. It's the most important job in the restaurant. That's one piece. Okay, and then the other is I don't think people realize how many kids. Some of our best chefs were these knock around kids who wanted some spending money in their teenage years, got a job as a dishwasher, because that's a job you could get, and before they knew anything about food, fell in love with food, they fell in love with the kitchen. The culture of a kitchen, the camaraderie of a kitchen, the the atmosphere of a kitchen. Um, And then I've had many chefs say to me how, like, if a dishwasher falls behind, you're you're hosed on your, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole ship goes down. Um, can you? I'd love you to speak to both of these. First of all, how did you enjoy the dishwasher experience when you were a teenager? I thought it was disgusting. You, know? you did? Yeah, it was disgusting. I hated it. But it was a job, yeah. you know, and I got money. And it was a mean, it was an avenue to independence of some level. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was, I grew up fine. Like, yeah. I, you know, my parents were middle class. I didn't get an allowance. Yeah. I never got, like, spending money. Yeah. Uh, I had to earn it. You know, yeah. I worked my whole life like yeah. my dad that's what I love about my father and he instilled a worth ethic in me that I think a lot of not a lot of people have yeah you know the weekends were you know chopping wood and putting up the wood pile sawing down trees you know mowing the lawn you earned your keep it. yeah we had yeah. to we had yeah. to he was very strict like that yeah um, and I hated it you yeah. know all my friends would be out doing whatever and I was stuck doing yard work or whatever it may be and we didn't get any money for it it was just you had to do it yeah um and but now you're grateful for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's taught me. I, I never knew how much he taught me until I, it finally clicked in yeah. my adult life. It wasn't recent. It was a long time ago. But yeah. I am so appreciative of him for that. You yeah. Know? Um, he taught me everything like I know today as far as like just little things, electronic things, you know, yeah. whatever. Ta- like we would always just take things apart and fix it if they were broken. Uh-huh. So that, and I still love to do that. Like just... Here's the second Make interview this season. Dan Kluger from Loring Place, as a kid, 
loved to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I would it's come so home. interesting. Even like when I was a teenager or I would come home from whatever, it'd be 11 o'clock at night. He'd be under the sink fixing the garbage disposal. I'd stay up with him and help him. And if it was just me handing him a tool right. or whatever, maybe it was fun. Like those were the great experiences I had with my father. Uh-huh. We didn't get along a lot of the time, but yeah. those times we really did. Yeah. Um, he had an intense job. He worked for the FBI. He worked like. Really? Yeah. Um, so, you know, imagine that. And, you know, I never knew about this growing up, but when you're, com- you're getting up at six o'clock in the morning and commuting an hour and a half to the city yeah. and spending eight to 10 hours at a job and then an hour and a half coming back, you're, yeah. you know, and then you come home and you find out your kid got kicked out of school for, you know, getting in a fight or doing yeah. something stupid and he's, yeah. you know, sent home for the day or whatever. And then he would like go off the handle on me, but like. I just thought he was a jerk, you know. Right. <laughs> all the things you had that, him factored in the fourteen the hours of ramp up to that up moment. To that boiling point, you know. So uh, now I, I kind of feel bad about it, actually. Yeah. You know, but um, um, yeah, yeah. So dishwashing was—it's also, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's gratifying too because you know there's a pile of dishes, yeah, and you just bang them out and they're clean and. It's, feels good you know i yeah. still love washing dishes like if a dishwasher calls out or yeah. gets you know has to leave or whatever i i'm the first person back there if you i are. could if i could make the salary i make now and wash dishes you know it, it'd be a no-brainer i love washing it i swear to god like yeah it's like one of my why? favorite things to do it's so gratifying like, you know why it's like the cashier job <laughs> exactly because there's an attainable perfection yeah it's just it's done right yeah it's only done one way. It's clean We're or not. We're getting somewhere today. Yeah. <laughs> I no longer need a psychiatrist. <laughs> you found all the answers in you. Um, okay. So when do you decide this is going to be what... Did you ever consider doing something else for a living? Yeah, there's so many things. What? Even today. like Anything that has to do with design. Um, I love... Shoes. I I have so many. Do you own a lot? Over close upwards of a hundred pairs. Do you really? I had to get rid of. I had so many shoes in New York because there's so many occasions you can have shoes for as well as coats. Like here, all you need is. There's not a hundred (laughs) though. You can make an argument for that, especially when you wear a polyester coat and Birkenstocks and some some you know chinos that are all day long. Yeah, you you want to look nice when you go out. I have a you know. I, I guess it, that stems from always getting hand-me-downs from my brother. Like, I right. never had new clothes growing up. Uh-huh. So now that I can afford them, I want, I yeah, want the best. Sure. Yeah, You know, it's probably why I don't have any money because I spent it all on clothes when I was younger. It's okay. But um, you've come to the right city. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I would love to be a shoemaker or right. a fashion designer yeah. or, um, you know, I love furniture. You know, are these things that you actually like? Did you have like a sketchbook of like fashion or no, no, no designs? Just, you know, like that? I I like to work with my hands. I yeah. I could be a mechanic. I could yeah. be, you know, anything that involves making something. Yeah. I so my father worked for the FBI. So when I was sixteen, I did a summer internship there. Um, okay. They do it for all the kids. Yeah. Like, you could just they just pay you. $12 an hour. You go sit the in the office of, of, of the employees. A- agents yeah. or employees. My sister yeah. did it. Uh, I did it, but I sat in a cubicle for eight hours a day. I got two breaks, a half an yeah. hour for lunch and 15 minutes in the morning. And it was the most dreadful thing ever. Like I could, the day could not pass by any slower. Yeah. And I was, 
it was I was just miserable and I did it for six weeks and I didn't even finish I was just gave up on it because it was just awful uh-huh. um, and I kind of told myself then I could never do that kind of job again in my life yeah like, it was just I you know just being s- stuck in the same yeah. you know space yes although this kitchen isn't very big but you know no, but I'm you, able to walk around I mean you know this the, the two things you just two things you said in the last five minutes are things that probably at least 90% of cooks and chefs would say right I love working with my hands that phrase comes up all the time right. with people in your profession and this thing of not wanting to be you know this idea that like an office or a cubicle would be basically like being caged yeah yeah and I think that's the reason also a lot of cooks don't do particularly well in school. You know, like the, that, the desk, you know, being at a, sitting at a school desk, yeah. you know, for eight hours a day with a little recess in the middle, is, is, it's the same thing. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I could not care less about being in school. You yeah. Know? Um, I wish I did, in hindsight, you know. There's a lot of things that I passed up on in school that I, I could have learned, you know, right. a lot more than I did, but it's, it's too late for that now. Right. <laughs> well. school at 38, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well. I guess I could, but you know, there's books, there's books. I read a lot of, I used to read a lot of books. Not but so, so when did you decide this is what you wanted to pursue? Um, when I was, I, so I worked in restaurants and I, I kept liking it more and more as I became a cook and doing that sort of thing. And, you know, that was like, I wanted to go to cooking school, like, because, you know, it was the big thing, like the Food Network had just started yeah. getting popular at that yeah. time. And it was like Bobby Flay and Emeril, when Emeril had his original show that was amazing. I used to watch it with my mom. And it was just like inspiring. With the and essence like, of Emeril? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you go to, you want to go to culinary school, you want to be a chef, because that's what you see on TV. You don't know anything about what the real world of fine dining is like. You think those guys are amazing, and they are amazing, don't get me wrong. Right. Um, but you aspire to be that. And I didn't think I was going to be like a TV chef, but I thought it was so cool. So I went to Johnson and Wales. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I did my best I could there. And I like did very well in that school. I got almost straight A's. Um, it just that kind of school came natural to me. You it felt a, like you were home. You felt like you'd found the place you were supposed to be. Doing yeah. What, yeah. Now, yeah, did you sure. connect? Um, this has been coming up almost since, actually, since the very first, the very first guest on the show ever was Alex Stupak, who you worked with. At I love Alex. And, um, you know, we, I, this has come up in a lot of interviews. You know, this is cooking an art. Is it a craft? Uh, I personally believe it's somewhere in the middle. Um, but having done and been interested in graphic things and your, you know, as a kid, and then switching to cooking, do you put those things in the same box yeah, I mean, for me, it's all about aesthetics. You know, mm-hmm. like, I love aesthetics. I love how things look in yeah. a certain way. Yeah. I have a vision in my head, and I want to make it look like that. Yeah. And um, that's what satisfies me as uh-huh. far as the cooking goes. I want it to taste amazing, and yeah. I want you to be enjoy it. But for me, um, it's, it's, a, it's a whole encompassing experience as uh-huh. far as a dish goes how right. I want it to look, how I want it to taste, how I want it to taste in your mouth at, at certain points yeah. in it, you know, because there's many components involved. The way it in changes it. as you eat your way through exactly. it. Exactly. Right. It's mm-hmm. not just a bowl of pasta, even though I love a bowl of pasta, but it's right. not like one single noted flavor or mm-hmm. texture. 
Right. So. Does something seep into the sauce as you're eating, and the sauce is different at the end than the beginning? Like these kind of factors. Exactly. I like very, very complicated dishes, and uh-huh. then very simple dishes as well. Some of the food we serve here is just basic two or three components. Yeah. It's very simple. Yeah. And then others is very complex. Uh-huh. With a lot of things going on. And I think that's a nice ebb and flow through a menu. So yeah. it's not just, yep. you know, so are, singular. Are taste and visual sort of equal in your head as priorities? When you start off, and I think most chefs will say this, it's all about, you know, making it look cool and making it awesome. And I think that's even more relevant in this day and age with social media. Yeah. Um, as you get older, and I'm sure a lot of old chefs will say this because this is how I learned yeah. as well. Like you find that that becomes less and less important. Yeah. And it's just about how good it is and yeah. how much you enjoy it and yeah. the flavor. Cause that's all that matters really. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's that plating is gone in 30 seconds or, yeah. or less, you know, yeah. it's there for the f- photo or whatever uh-huh. they want it to be. And then it's eaten and it's gone. And right. you know, all that time and energy is, is spent on that. And, yes, and the focus is lost on on the enjoyment. It's not just an enjoyment, a visual enjoyment. Yeah, which is what everybody wants these days. They sure. Want to? You know, a lot of people come in now and they just want to take a picture of the food and they don't even really eat it or enjoy it because they spent five minutes taking a picture of it and now it's cold or it's melted or whatever it is. I've been saying this forever, and it's. I mean, I'm 12 years older than you. It's hard. It's hard to say this and not sound, you know, like a old man. cantankerous yeah. old dude, right? <laughs> but um, you know, and I. I I say it. All, I've been saying it on the show a lot this season. You know, you have to accept that things change. But yeah, things for sure. change. But I do believe that there is an entire subset of diners out there for whom taste is maybe third or fourth down on the list of what a dish has to do. Right. I really believe that. But you have to you have to walk that fine line. You have to give those people what they want, and if they want to take a picture of it, right? Like, but I'm saying you could have a dish. That I mean, we're in the Salt Bay age, right? Yeah. Okay, that's like the ultimate. Everyone, by the way, should read the Time Out piece. Um, I don't even know who wrote it. I was going to write a piece on my blog about Salt Bay, and I was Googling around. And then I read this piece in Time Out, and I was like, there's nothing more to be said. It was so brilliant. Uh, but it was how that was the ultimate expression of the Internet age, of mm-hmm. the Instagram age. <clears throat> but I think there are people for whom, you know, if it looks cool, if it's, if it's something they've never, if it's a combination they've never seen before, you know, like their the shock value. Mm-hmm. Forget whether or not it works. <laughs> um, you know, and then if it's if they got their if they have their uh, you know that notch on their Instagram belt. Right. You know, like these things are are um, priorities for certain diners. We all and, look and, at and it. Right? Yes, but you can give them all the other stuff and and still work into the equation. It has to taste. I, I the only thing to me that I consider. I don't even think it's, uh, I don't consider it antiquated. You know, I think for me, flavor is priority one. Yeah. You satisfy that and then you can do whatever you want, you know, but the fact that you're going to eat it to me is paramount. Right. So, but I think even there, there are even diners who lose sight of that, you know, it's just, uh, it wasn't that great, but it looked really cool. And yeah, I was, I got to be, I was there, you know, I punched, ticked that box off. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, don't, I don't want it to be like that. I want it yeah. to be fun and delicious yeah. and, and have everything, yeah. you know, have all the things. Like for me, I can't put a dish together until it's totally completed in my head. Like yeah. how it tastes, how it looks, how it feels. Yes. Every single component needs to be right yeah. in order for me to even start making it. Uh huh. And sometimes that's what takes – like I can't just like – 
make a stock, cook some vegetables, you know, add a little acid, add some salt, yeah. you know, cut some other vegetables, grill a piece of meat, put it all together. Yeah. It has to be finished. I can't just do one thing at a time. Um, now, when you say in your head, are you able to spend enough time sort of cogitating on something that by the time you take it out for a test drive, you sort of nail it or come close to nailing it the first time? 60% of the time works every time. If it doesn't work the first time, it's gone. I don't even, I don't even try you to don't make tinker. it right now. It's just, That's if it doesn't so work, it doesn't work. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's a head game for me. It's just. So you'll have it worked out in your head. You have an idea. You will work it out to, yeah. as far as you believe you can take it. Then you will actually cook it. And if it doesn't work at that point, that's it. That's it, yeah. Okay. And it's, that's been accelerated over the past three years as far as... Out of necessity? Making, making menus. Like, I yeah. don't have time. Right. I don't have time to fall back on and, and tinker around with a dish for three or four days to make it right. I have to nail it. Yeah. Or I move on. Has that... Uh, has that... Um, Ratio you just that success rate that you just described that sixty percent has that is that an improved over what it might have been say five years ago? Is that, have you that gotten was, that was kind have of a you joke, gotten better yeah. at working? Oh, it's a joke. <laughs> Works every time, Andrew. Every time I nail it every time. No, it, it's it's half and I half. I don't know what to believe now. Yeah, I'm just a straight liar. All they the taught time. you well at the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> You've been interrogating me this whole time. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's. In the past, it's it, it was different. Yeah. I mean, but it's always kind of since I've been a chef, like it has to work. Everything has to has to click and, yeah. and be a hundred percent in order to make it. Yeah. And, you know, for a while, I had stopped thinking about food completely. I had a, a I don't, about a year and a half where I didn't cook in my early thirties, and you know, I stopped thinking about food completely. I guess it's because I was just thinking about getting a job because yeah. I was, you know, living in New York with no money coming uh, in. <laughs> what did you do for that year and a half? Not much. You had a savings? Uh, somewhat, yeah. Okay. I, I for whatever very, reason, you were able to... I lived you very were able to not frugally. I did, I, did some, I did some consulting for yeah. various restaurants. Uh-huh. Um, was that a useful time period for introspection, reflection? Was it just you were kind of shot and you needed to I recharge? I was shot. And, you know, I just spent a lot of time at coffee shops, you know, on uh-huh. a daily basis. Uh-huh. And what brought you back? I, it's, it's the only thing I know how to do. I, I've been trying to get out of being a chef for so long, but it's the only thing I know how to do. Do you mean like, that? I do. I do. I'm, I'm, I don't know. It's, it's just such a hard thing for me mentally and it's just getting harder and harder and harder you know the, the job never gets easier and the older you get like I, I just I don't know it's it's always <laughs> been a struggle I think it's just because I make it too hard on myself you yeah know? I expect too much out of myself yeah and I don't I don't know how to not not do that yeah you know? it's but here's the question when you you say this about yourself right but then there ha- I'm assuming there have to be moments where you step back. Like you may feel that way going into a day. You may feel that way during a night. But when you leave here at the end of the night, do you not have a sense of uh, maybe not every day, but oh, that went well or things? I mean, yeah. Like, when you I mean, debut a new menu here, do you not have a feeling of pride and satisfaction in it once you get to that point? Like it may be torture to get there, right? But when you apply this level of perfectionism to that process, I would think at the end of it, you you have to feel pretty good about the product. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels it feels good sometimes. Um, this is this has gone way way downhill. It's it? <laughs> become the most miserable interview. I've... It, no, it's, no, I, I relate to a lot of this, but I think you know, every, um, everybody wants to do something else, right? But the, this is what I do, and I can't not do it. Like yeah. I say those things, but you know, this this is who I am. It's what I do. Yeah. It's not. It's how we identify ourselves. You know, it's just like if I worked as an accountant or something, I'd say, yeah, I'm an accountant, but I have a whole nother life besides that, right? Yeah, this right. is my life. This yeah. is what I do. Yeah. Um, it's it's not a nine to five. It's a, you know, 24 seven. So if you're not working in a restaurant, you're thinking about food or, right. you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great. And, you know, I mean, every chef, I think struggles with this. They all need a break. You know, it's a, yeah, but it's also, I feel like when you said, um, this is the only thing I know how to do, right. That is a, um, a negative take on it, but in I a mean, way, but what, no, but what I was going to say is there's so many people, um, who do, you know this, but for people listening, there are so many people who, you know, like you said, uh, Kids who, to some extent, didn't fit in the school situation, who maybe had to vary in various degrees of uh, disciplinary issues, um, didn't quite, weren't quite drawn to the you know quote unquote traditional careers, right? And then they find the cooking, right? And it's almost like this is a huge word, but I believe this. It's like salvation for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so, to me, that's the sunnier way to look at. It's all I know how to do. Is like, what would you do if there wasn't that? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because so I'm not in that situation. But I'm not <laughs> right. But isn't that you know? I have a very good friend. I said, "What would you have done if you didn't find cooking?" And he said, "I'd be the most successful drug dealer in X state." And nice. If I say the state, it'll give him away. But um, you know, yeah. No, I mean, I know how to do more things than cook. I know how to do a lot of things. Yeah, you know? I know how to breathe. I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. I, I love it. Breathing I, won't. It's a love hate relationship. Not, right? uh, fund your shoe habit. No. Okay. So we're going to move this in a slightly different direction. Fantastic. We. I don't know how this happened. We are almost done an hour here. Um, uh, we didn't get to a lot of stuff you did, but can you just? You worked at a bunch. You worked at WD Fifty. I did. You worked. You did some time at Muguritz. I did. Um, I don't. We don't have time to do the whole chronology, but can you give me one or two moments? from whatever early job that you want that stand out for you? Like when you think back about your early days as a cook, sous chef, whatever, um, what are moments that kind of stand out? What are moments that influenced you, whether it was uh, from an, uh, uh, an aspirational standpoint, a creative standpoint, an organizational, a managerial standpoint? What are, what are things that kind of pop in your memory? It's been... So many jobs. Uh-huh. Uh, I've probably worked at, you know, with staging and with two-week stints of when I was younger. I probably worked over, I would say, 30 to 40 restaurants in my life, which is a lot. You know, a lot of people spend, you know, four or five years at one place. Mm. Um, I have a short attention span as far as, you know, I don't really, I've never lasted longer than three years at a restaurant. And I'm yeah, not- but by today's standards, that's a lot. No? 
I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think by the standards of like the '90s, that would be average. Yeah. But I think today, that's. I mean, I hear all the time people saying they can't hold on to people for the one-year minimum they expect. Anymore. Right. I mean, there's a short ex- attention span. There's only yeah. so much you can learn and so much. So far, you can go in a small restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. if there's a sous chef already, like, right. he's not going anywhere. Right. So, um, but, you know, there was a lot of experience at WD that was amazing, you know, working with Alex. And that was like a time and place kind of thing that was mm-hmm. like, you know, super inspiring. He's an amazing chef. And just, you know, I learned so much. I had no idea, like, how to do pastry but I yeah. wanted to do it like I I staged for a job in the savory kitchen at WD and they didn't have anything and Wiley wanted to hire me and he's like well I, do you know anything about pastry and I yeah. was like oh yeah 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 I'm cool because I've always made desserts in the restaurants I worked and you know but Alex is <laughs> I was just going to say so you kind of like fudge your way through that and then you I end did. up working for Stupak <laughs> the level the level of you know everything he does is you know it's next level and you know oh working with him I just have to quickly say, for people who have just discovered this so recently, episode one, if you go to the beginning of the, the catalog on iTunes or wherever you find us, was a 90-minute interview with Alex Stupak. And if you want to appreciate um, the um, futility of trying to fake your way into that guy's life, just go listen to 10 minutes of that. And I say that with all affection to Mr. Stupak. Anyway, but yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, Gwinnett Street was just time and place as well. And that was just yeah. my first real, real you know, do whatever I want and, mm-hmm. you know, working with the people I worked with yeah. and, and the time of, you know, Brooklyn coming up in that, you know, that yeah. was the big Brooklyn thing. And I think we were on the, you yeah. know, one of the most, I don't want to say one of the biggest like influences on that, but yeah. I think we were, Yeah, you know, we were kind of the, the front runners in that. And yeah. it was, it was a push, you know, every, every night there'd be somebody else just showing up, yeah, you yeah. know, and you know, you, you gotta, it's gotta be on, you yes. know, you gotta do your best. And, yeah. you know, everybody was talking about us and it was, it was an amazing feeling, you know, it was yeah. just like the drive and, you know, the inspiration and, and the people I worked with. And it was one of the best times of my life cooking. It was the hardest. Yes. I don't think I took more than 10 days off in two years. Uh-huh. You know, I was at the market every morning at 7 and leaving the restaurant at 1 in the morning. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, we'd get up, we'd go to the farmer's market, we'd lug it all back on the train. Yeah. We'd change the menu almost every day. Yeah. New dishes. And, you know, I, I wanted it all. I wanted to be the chef. I wanted everybody to respect me. You know, I wanted... I wanted that so bad, and it's what I've always wanted. Yeah. And uh, for for some time, it was good. You know, yeah. I didn't. Nothing else mattered. Yeah. Nothing else but that restaurant mattered to me, and the people in it, and making it the best we could possibly make it. Yeah. It was, it was great. Like I, no idea about anything that happened from the middle of 2011 to 2013. Like, the outside world. Outside world. Right. Nothing. Nothing. Right. I had no idea about it music like what was going on in the news yeah anything no clue no yes. clue it was just work i've had moments just... like that creative like this book i just finished i've had periods where for like months yeah just zoned out there's still i didn't know movies had opened and closed exactly there's yeah. still songs i hear that I, <laughs> i've never heard before oh, that's pretty good yeah. what's that called hey yeah yeah so <laughs> but you know i it, it 
but that's great. I mean, so there was the the human cost of being like that, right? right? But also, that's an intensity that most people never get to have in any profession. It was it was awesome. You know, it was so good. It didn't it didn't last, unfortunately. But you know, that time in my life was I'll never get that back. And and Mm -hmm. maybe I will actually. Maybe maybe it'll happen again. Yeah, Um, it's kind of. I don't know. It's uh, it's great to have those experiences. You yeah. know, like I didn't I didn't take anything for granted at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was given an opportunity, and I made the best of it in any every way I could. Yeah, you, know? you can't see that kind of uh, whirlwind coming, right? No. Like you just. It almost takes on a volition and a life of its own. Almost, it's almost like a vortex. Right. Right. And you get pulled into it. And then you're just almost, even though, if, even if you're the chef, you're sort of along for the ride. Yeah. Right? It almost takes, it's, it's like almost like a film set or a, it, 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 there's this entity that you just like get swept up into. Right. It was. But that's exciting. Yeah. Is it addictive? It's addictive. That was, yeah, yeah, that was, that was super addictive. It was just. Needed a day off probably sometimes, didn't want the day off. Yeah, so many times. Yeah. So many times. And I don't know, the, the, people I got to cook for, the chefs I got to cook for. Yeah. Like, it was amazing to me that these people that I respect and yeah. I've never met before yeah. coming in for dinner yeah. and coming back in the kitchen and telling me how much they love it. And it was, it was now, awesome. Don't tell me if you don't want, was there anyone, who, uh, like who meant stuff, who really meant something to you? Like Daniel Hume came in once, mm-hmm. Bo Beck came in mm-hmm. once, who, who was one of my favorite chefs. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Andrew Carmelini came. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Andrew, Andrew and Paul Liebrandt came several... Uh, Paul came several times, but I, I wasn't there for whatever reason. Mm. The few times they were mm. there was like one of the days off. Um, and I have a ton of respect for Paul. He's like one of my favorite chefs. Just everything he does, Cortone was amazing. Just I say this all the time, and I say it to... I mean, I've said this to three-star Michelin chefs. Technic, whether you like his style or don't, I happen to love it. Technically, I don't think there's a better chef, maybe as good, I don't think there's a better chef on the planet than Paul. He's rad. I think he is just, whatever word you touch by, whatever your higher power, I mean, he has such a gift. Uh, It's incredible. It's incredible. I can see why you would relate to it, too, because his stuff is so, he uses the word graphic. Yeah. Um, His stuff is so visual. Right. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, New York at that time was was an amazing food scene, right? Mm-hmm. It was like so many things happening, yeah. so many young chefs coming yeah. up. It was just, you know, everything, like, was was great then. Yeah. Right? Every, there was such a community, all these young chefs, and, you know, it was, I miss it. Uh-huh. Really, I really, I miss that point in my life a lot. And yeah. I, it was... It was great talking. I don't talk about it that much. But you're—I have to just say because you're—you're um, you're thir- you're thirty-eight, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think isn't part of what you're just talking about youth? I mean, you're—you're you're like two years from four. You know, like some of that excitement. Forty is scary. Thirty was scary. Forty scary. I heard twenty-nine me. scary. 
29 I always was find the, worst. the nine scary. I'm like, 29 was the worst. It's like there's all this. It's like a year of dread. There's all you know, this like build 49, up. Like, it was like a year of dread. 30. I'm going to be right, 30. Exactly. I haven't accomplished anything exactly. in my life. Then you turn 30. Right. None of it matters. You're like, why was I so upset about turning 30? It's fine. You then you turn 31. About, right. That's even worse. You know what I say about all these big birthdays? It's like you die and then you realize it's okay. Yeah, like, it's fine. <laughs> it's like you the get past sun's the, still kind of come right, up. You wake up the next morning you're like, oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I turned 50 Nothing last is. summer. It seemed like the biggest deal. Yeah. And I just woke up the next day I made my coffee. Like, I, you know, I was like, well, yeah, For sure. I'm going to go for a run. That'll make me feel like I'm, you know, doing okay. Yeah. But um, but isn't part of this just? I mean, you're at you you're you know you're 38. Like, isn't part of? I think a lot of the stuff you're describing is just stuff. You know, it's like when you talk about first love. You know, yeah. that intensity. Like, you may not have that intensity. You have other intensity. Right. Um, you'll have other things that satisfy you, but it may not be exactly that because you've had that for the first time. Right. Like you're in a you're in a pretty accomplished kitchen here. You guys are doing exciting things, but it's not the first. You're not. It's not your first at bat. No. It's the lead person. It's not your first... Like, that you can't have again. The hard part about L.A. is... And I don't want to talk negative on it, but no. I don't feel the community as much as I do in New York. And that's... Mm-hmm. Like, I love L.A. Um, I love going to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Yeah. I love some of the seafood we get. Yeah. And... But there's not the... There's not the community. I don't see... I don't really know that many people out here. Part of the reason why that is because I've been changing the menu every single month which is like opening a new restaurant every month for the past three years part of its geography here yeah geography too has a lot to play with it you know it's not like you're walking on the streets or on the train or you know um and i think the car culture is even part of it yeah for sure the fact that places close i mean like we're where's the place where all the cooks are later you know what i mean no idea that place doesn't exist there there probably is you know it's but not in a not in a centralized way no yeah it's not you know what what was back when I was cooking and where we would meet up and things like that. I had a few occasions when I was working on this book, you know, where I, I would be with, like, one interview wrapping, another one starting, it'd be two chefs, two L.A. chefs. Someone threw me a dinner. Joaquin Spachal threw me a dinner, and there were a bunch of sh- uh, chefs there. <clears throat> and there were people in all these instances who had been in L.A. for decades, right, who've known each other forever, and sometimes they'd be like, God, I haven't seen you in two years. Right. Right? In New York, that's not imagine. That's unimaginable. That working chefs in their restaurants would go that long without running into the other, at least right. at a part at an industry party. Or yeah. uh, I mean, New York is huge. There's so of. many people, but it's still such but a small world. Geographically, it's tiny. Yeah, yeah. Which is which I love. Because so I don't think that's a failing of LA from a like a spiritual standpoint. No, I just think it's it's a factor of all these other things. Well, yeah. You also don't know. Like I don't know where we stand as far as like there's. You know, ratings of restaurants yeah. and yeah. but it's none of that matters to me. Yeah. It matters, you know, what what my peers think of me. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, you know, we wanna we wanna be respected. Yes. I wanna be respected by my peers and, and I don't really know where I stand here. So it's kinda like um yeah. you know, I'm in outer space I feel like sometimes. Yeah. Like I don't I don't know what's going on. Right. So that's hard for me here um i think we're a good restaurant i'd like to say we're a good restaurant maybe you know i think you're a great restaurant for my one meal here well i mean it thank you if i didn't mean it i would just kind of said you wouldn't be here right all right well thanks for being here (laughs) (laughs) beat was a good menu though that was probably one of the best that was such a good man i happen to love beets i don't understand people who don't it's 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 like uh cilantro i don't get i don't even i just 
It's so funny because it's just whether or not something tastes good to you, but I just don't. There's certain things I don't get. I yeah. love beets. I mean, it was, a, it was a really fun ingredient because it's... We went about it in a totally different way. Like yeah. There was nothing traditional. There was no beet and goat cheese. There was no, you know, roasted yeah. beet salad. It was there was very, a borscht. The borscht, yeah. But that's the thing with these, these menus is you can do a really classic dish. You right. can do it really, really well. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and also great I, color. For somebody graphically oriented, great color. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah. the, the, my favorite thing from that is, is if I could ever... You know, the, there was this beet fudge that we made. We gave it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be able to sell that. I just want to be so able to. cool. The, it was so good, right? This is the time. Yeah. You uh, can we sell it this. at the Santa Monica Farmers Yeah, market. maybe I should start doing that. It requires All right. a lot of. I, um, well, we, I'm here for other, I'm here for the book tour. I was so glad we got to do this. You just became my therapist for <laughs> an hour. <laughs> Told you this was too early in the morning. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah you were still in a half dream state. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you for making the time. And thank you again. Listeners weren't there. They have no idea what I'm talking about except for what I described. (laughs) You were the ultimate Johnny on the spot the other night. And we had already scheduled this interview. This was not a thank you for that. Right. Um, I wanted to come talk to you because I think you're one of the best chefs in Los Angeles. That's why I'm here. Justin, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That's our show for this week. Caitlin. Andrew. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Listen to me. I'm just like, I'm just bouncing off the walls because you're back. Okay. I'm so glad you're back. I you just, watch. I, I'm going to get, I'm going to send you, I'm going to get Instagram messages yeah. from listeners saying, you're right. You're better when Caitlin's there. She should be there every week. Okay. You watch. All right. You watch. And I'm going to forward those to you. Please do. Okay. Uh, thank you, Justin Hilbert, for the interview. Thank you to... Laryl Garcia, who helped arrange that interview and was there as our audience that day. Thank you, Vitor, for being our new engineer and doing a bang-up job. Uh, Am I forgetting anyone, Caitlin? Thank you. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. we got a bunch of great new episodes already recorded, and I'll be getting them out to you as soon as possible. So until next week, if not sooner, thank you for listening. And we'll see you back soon on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Mm-hmm.